Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John talks with Karim Sajidpour about tipping points in Iran and the future of the regime. Then, John, Will, and I discuss how the United States and the region might interact with the post-Islamic Republic, Iran. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Karim Sajadpour is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he focuses on Iran and U.S. foreign policy toward the Middle East. He's a regular contributor to The Atlantic and many leading publications. He appears frequently on radio and television. Karim is also a friend of many years. Karim, welcome to Babel. Thank you, John. It's great to be with you. You had a piece in The Atlantic in June where you said tipping points in authoritarian regimes are hard to predict. Is there any reason to think that we're at some sort of tipping point in the U.S.-Iran relationship with the election of Ibrahim Raisi as the new president? I think tipping points can only really be understood in hindsight. We look back and say, you know, that was a tipping point, but we it's very rare in history that you anticipate something as a tipping point and actually it happens. And the example I oftentimes give to people is in December of 2010, if an analyst had predicted that Ben Ali was going to fall in Tunisia and that was going to create this domino effect of Mubarak falling, Gaddafi, etc., no one would have predicted it because there was no signs of it. In Iran, there is, in my view, kind of a mass discontent with the status quo, which is a combination of you know, economic malaise and political and social repression. The bottom line remains that you have a regime which is united, committed to staying in power, and committed to killing a lot of people to preserve their power. And you have a society with all their discontents, they're disunited, um, they're not armed, they're not organized, they're not, they don't have leaders, and they're not willing to die en masse, uh, to take to the streets, to change the political reality. So my view is that we haven't reached a tipping point inside Iran, that the Islamic Republic is not on the verge of collapse, and there's not going to be any near-term transformation in U.S.-Iran relations. But these things are inherently impossible to predict. Javad Zarif, who both of us know, has played a remarkable role as Iran's interlocutor with the world, seems likely to leave his position. Does that matter for the way the world relates to Iran? Does a diplomat like Zarif make a difference? Or because all the decisions are actually made by Ayatollah Khamenei, is it largely irrelevant? I do think that Zarif's presence makes a difference in Iran's foreign relations. He doesn't make a difference in Iran's policies, but he does make a difference in how the world perceives Iran, because he's so effective in taking Iranian policies, which to many would appear to be hostile, antagonistic. Zarif is very effective at making the argument, especially to Western interlocutors, 
that these policies do make sense and that they're a reflection of Iranian national interests and Iran is really the victim, not the aggressor. And so I think as long as people like Zarif have been around in the Iranian system, you know, a lot of uh, Europeans and folks on the left in the United States would make the argument that Zarif and Rouhani, they are natural allies, these moderate forces inside Iran. And instead of pressuring Iran with sanctions, we need to engage them and empower them. And this is an argument which Barack Obama was sympathetic to. I think with a different team in Iran, if Ibrahim Raisi brings a different foreign minister, more hardline figure, I do think that's going to make a difference in how the world perceives Iran. Ayatollah Khamenei and the Revolutionary Guards were in charge and will remain in charge. And no Iranian policies are really going to meaningfully change. But I, I think the optic of the nature of the Iranian regime to the world will change if Zarif is, is removed as, as foreign minister. You suggest in this Atlantic article that, that you thought that looking forward, it's more likely that Iran has a leader who comes out of the Revolutionary Guard or the intelligence services rather than an endless string of aged clerics. If that kind of transformation happens, what does that mean for the kinds of behaviors that the U.S. has found so troubling from Iran? Does that mean that they're easier because there's not an ideology behind it? Or does it mean they're harder because you just have security people who are bent on looking for weaknesses and, and, and seeking advantage? I found the most compelling parallel with Iran to be the Soviet Union, just in terms of the nature of the Iranian system. You know, what we saw in the Soviet Union compared to, let's say, China in the 1970s, when they reached a fork in the road and they had to decide whether they put ideology first or economics and national interests first, you know, the Soviet Union were unable to abandon their ideology. I think similarly, the Islamic Republic of Iran, which is now in its 42nd year, is really incapable of prioritizing Iran's national and economic interests before revolutionary ideology. So in my view, they're going to follow the same fate as the Soviet Union, which is they're, you know, incapable of reforming and so eventually it's a system which will likely implode internally, but the Soviet Union lasted three generations. The Islamic Republic is really just entering its second generation of leadership. So this current malaise in Iran can be sustained with repression for perhaps even another generation. But then what comes next in Iran? I do see parallels here with post-Soviet Russia and that the country didn't transition from the Soviet Union to a democratic Russia, but it was essentially a new form of authoritarianism, which took communism and replaced it with grievance-driven Russian nationalism, led by someone from the Ancien Regime, Vladimir Putin, who was a product of the KGB. And likewise, if I had to make a prediction in Iran, I think that the next prominent leader in Iran is less likely to be an aging cleric like an Ayatollah Khamenei or an Ibrahim Raisi, and more likely to be someone who is a product of either the Revolutionary Guards or Iran's intelligence services. And instead of espousing Shiite nationalism, they substitute that with Iranian nationalism, with Persian nationalism, 
And they can summon that same grievance-driven nationalism that Vladimir Putin has in Russia. So, you know, how does that change U.S.-Iran dynamics? In some ways, Putin's Russia, I would argue, is, you know, for all its challenges, it's probably easier for the United States to deal with than the Soviet Union was. But it's still a country which many would perceive to be a strong competitor, if not an adversary. And I think likewise in Iran, even though, in my view, you do have a lot of Iranians who have a real affinity for the United States and are not supportive of this culture of death to America and don't want their country's organizing principle to be opposition to the United States, summoning those you know grievances of country which has been manipulated by rapacious foreign powers, that's not difficult to tap into if you're an Iranian leader. But would the ties to all of the Shia militia and the Shia communities across the Middle East diminish the sense of Iranian regional ambitions? Or would Iran feel we have to fight them there so we don't have to fight them here? If you think about it, if you're a predominantly Persian Shiite nation in a region which is predominantly Sunni Arab, and you want to be the regional power, you want to be the regional hegemon, you know, you can attract far more followers waving a pro-Palestine flag or an anti-Israel flag than you can waving a Persian or a Shiite flag, because, you know, that's how you get Sunni Arabs to, to become sympathetic to your cause is by picking a transnational issue like, you know, anti-Israel, anti-America, pro-Palestine. So that had served Iran well for many years. I think that Iran's stock, its soft power in the region began to dissipate, though, when Bashar Assad started to kill Sunni Arabs en masse. And, you know, Iran being his chief backer was viewed in a very different light throughout the Sunni Arab world. And so that's a, a very good question. If a future leader of Iran resembles kind of an Iranian Vladimir Putin and espouses Persian nationalism rather than Shiite Islamic nationalism. What does Iran do with Hezbollah and the Houthis in Yemen and Shia militias in Iraq? My argument would be to say that the Iran's support for these regional militias hasn't really served the country's economic and national interests. It's certain, there's no economic benefit to supporting these groups. You probably forgot that you said this once in a meeting we were in probably a decade ago. You said that Iran has forsaken being a global player for being a regional spoiler. You look at a country like Turkey, which is quite similar to Iran in terms of population, strong national identity. And Turkey, in many ways, is a global player. There are kind of Turkish products that are sold around the world. There are foreign investments around the world into Turkey. Whereas Iran, aside from oil, hasn't really, you know, oil and gas hasn't really developed its export markets, does not really foreign capital that, that comes to Iran. And a lot of it is because of its this revolutionary ethos, which is both in its domestic politics and its regional politics. So I'm not sure that the support for these regional militias has really done anything for Iran's economic interests. It's, it's really been more of, of charity that they've given. And it probably hasn't heightened the country's security. It's probably heightened its insecurity given that they've made adversaries of all their neighbors. And I wonder if there weren't a religious layer, whether the perception of Iran as a regional hegemon would diminish and, and reassure neighbors and, and allow for 
more economic engagement. You know, when I talk to officials, both in the Gulf countries or Levant or North Africa, they all lament the state of relations with Iran. I don't know of any country which wants to be in a permanent state of hostility with Iran. And also, as we've seen over the last several years, the mutual concerns, fears about Iran have helped midwife normalization of relations between Israel and, and Gulf countries as well. But in my view, this is all kind of an historic aberration. This isn't the norm as things should be uh, in the Middle East. When you listen to the talking points and the slogans of Iran's top leadership, it's very rare I hear them say Zendebad Iran, which is long live Iran. You know, they're wishing death to America, death to Israel. And, you know, Iran has, for that reason, one of the world's highest rates of brain drain. Uh, as I said, uh, enormous uh, social, political, economic discontent. And so you can kind of sustain this status quo with repression and a steady stream of oil revenue. But at some point, both of those things start to run out. Khamenei is the last of the first generation revolutionaries in Iran. And what I always find interesting is when I watch him give sermons and you see other videos or photos of his grandchildren running around, they're wearing like Izod and Tommy Hilfiger shirts and, you know, blue jeans and stuff like that. And so there's an Instagram feed called Rich Kids of Tehran, and it's the children of revolutionary elite partying in Dubai and Europe and elsewhere. And so I think that eventually this kind of fire-breathing revolutionary ethos is going to peter out, but it could take a while. Let, let's go back to the domestic scene, which you refer to, and, and Iran has been really hit hard by COVID. And yet I haven't seen any political impact from COVID. Is that a reflection of Iran? Is it a reflection that COVID is a kind of disease that doesn't create a political backlash? Or is there a political backlash that we're just not seeing? Iran was not only one of the countries hardest hit by the pandemic, but they've been you know, also very slow in responding because of their ideology, which has prohibited them from um, importing Western vaccines. Yet, as you said, people, we haven't seen that much of a popular backlash with people rising up. And I think it's been proven throughout history that popular uprisings don't tend to happen when people feel most destitute. They actually tend to happen when people's quality of life is starting to improve and their expectations start to rise, but then those expectations are unfulfilled. To your question about why we haven't seen any popular backlash or political tumult, in some ways, you know, people are just kind of struggling these days in Iran to make ends meet. And, you know, absolutely there is frustration with the state of the country and the leadership when it comes to the pandemic. But at the moment, it feels like people don't have the, the economic luxury to go and wage political protest. And so in my view, paradoxically, if and when the nuclear deal with Iran is revived, and my expectation is that it will be revived sometime in 2021, even perhaps this summer, in my view, that's not going to be a get out of jail free card for the Islamic Republic. But what will more likely happen is that people's lives will start to improve once the sanctions are removed and Iran is exporting its oil again. And people will have now a heightened expectations of how the nuclear deal is going to improve their lives economically. 
But ultimately, the Islamic Republic is never going to be able to deliver on the expectations that Iranians have. And I think that is going to cause a backlash. When you and I first met, I think, in the early 2000s, you were writing for the International Crisis Group. You were the chief Iran analyst. You were going back and forth. It's been years since you've been able to go back to Iran. You and I both have friends who have been in Iranian prisons. You and I both have friends who are currently in Iranian prisons. How do you do your job without being able to go to Iran? What do you have to do? What are you able to do to keep your finger on the pulse of where the Iranian public is when it's a place where you can't safely travel yourself? It's a fantastic question and one I really think about every day. And you can add to that question what you alluded to, which is when you have friends who are imprisoned in Iran. You know, my friend of 20 years, Siamak Namazi, is now approaching his sixth year as a hostage in Iran. And when you see and witness things like this, how do you not conflate your emotions and your analysis? So these are, I think, two real challenges for anyone who follows of Iran, when, especially when you're of Iranian origin. How do you have your finger on the pulse of what's going on when you can't go to the country that you work on? And then how do you not conflate your emotions and your hopes and your analysis? And, and, and I would simply say that I don't feel like I have my finger on the pulse you know, when I was living inside Iran, I was constantly interviewing people, trying to travel throughout the country. And even then, I would get things wrong and, you know, I would miss trends. For example, the election of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad in 2005, I covered that election. I was on the streets every day talking to people about that, and I didn't anticipate that outcome. I guess in my defense, I could say that in, in 2016, very few people anticipated the election of Donald Trump. And with all of our national opinion polls as well. So you could argue that you never really have your finger on the pulse of a nation, but especially when you're far away, you're, you're lacking that. So I guess the conclusion I've reached about Iran is that I, first of all, I never make predictions anymore because they're always proven wrong. Second, studying comparative history is valuable because you realize that this in some ways, Iran in 2021 is unique. But on the other hand, there have been authoritarian regimes like this throughout history that have come and gone. So what are the trends that one sees? The way I think about this as an analyst is to think about these macro trends rather than micro trends. I can't predict what's going to happen in the next six months. But looking over the next 10, 15 years, based on comparative context, historic context. But just to emphasize, I feel all of us are... are you know, shooting in the dark. And, and even those who are inside Iran have real limitations in, in, in anticipating what is going to be next inside the country. The second point about how not to conflate one's hopes and emotions analysis. I remember this in 2009, when there were popular uprisings happening in Iran, the green movement was happening. It was pretty black and white in that, you know, when you see an overwhelmingly youthful, peaceful protest, protesting very basic rights and you see this kind of aging, violent, clerical elite shooting innocent people, it's very easy to choose sides and reveal what your hopes are. I guess the thing is you just have to be mindful of not conflating what you want to see happen with what you think will happen. 
you know, one of the things that, you know, that I've come to appreciate over two decades in following Iran is that you may hear, you may interview, you know, may talk to 50 or 100 people and every single one of them will complain about the status quo. But that also doesn't translate to the idea that there's going to be imminent political change. And I think that's one of the things you learn as, as an analyst that and one of the sons of a very prominent government, Iranian government official told me this years ago. He said, really, what matters for a regime like Iran is not the, the breadth of the regime support, meaning what percentage of the population supports it, but it's really the depth of its supporters. If you have only 10% of the population which is committed to the Islamic Republic and willing to go out there and kill and die for the Islamic Republic, you know, that's more powerful than the 80% who will stay at home and complain about it on Facebook. And so that is kind of the reality that I see that you, the Islamic Republic still has the Revolutionary Guards and the Basij, which remain committed to preserving the status quo and are willing to use a lot of violence to continue to preserve the status quo. And as long as that exists, then, you know, talking to people about their discontents you know, obviously you pick stuff up, but I really pay much more attention to any signs of fissures within Iran's security forces more than I do, you know, the latest articulations of, of popular discontent. And it's, it's frankly very rare to see concrete fissures within Iran's security establishment or any even mild criticisms of the supreme leader. I can count on one hand the number of times over the last decade or two when a senior revolutionary guard or besiege commander has said something even mildly critical of, of the supreme leader. I remember talking to a Western ambassador in Iran in the last couple of years who said, actually, the way to tell that the system feels under pressure is not when there are criticisms that come out, because when the system's really under pressure, everybody comes together and circles the wagons. So the normal situation is the backbiting and the politicking and everything else. When the regime really feels under threat, it comes together. And that's the moment to watch for, for fishers. That's the moment to watch for, for things really going awry. Yeah, and you know, one of the, you know, if you compare the Islamic Republic to the Shah's regime, in the late 70s, when the protests started to mushroom, a lot of the Shah's political and economic military elite, they had either lived abroad, some of them had foreign passports, they spoke foreign languages, they were educated abroad, and they could remake their lives in Los Angeles and London and south of France and Bethesda. The Islamic Republic's political and military elite it's essentially a regime which is almost friendless, with the exception of Assad Syria, which is not a place you would want to retire to. They don't really have any reliable friends anywhere in the world. Most of them studied either in the seminaries of, of Qom or in the case of the Revolutionary Guards, their formative experience was during the Iran-Iraq War. And so they don't have a plan B the way that a lot of other authoritarian elite have a plan B if things go wrong. And so they've shown themselves really willing to kill a lot of people rather than, than abdicate power. And, you know, the thing about revolutionary authoritarian regimes, whether that's Cuba, China, the Soviet Union, the Islamic Republic, is that there is a powerful organizing principle. There is this revolutionary cause which you 
inculcate your followers to try to adhere to. It's not just, you know, go out and kill for Hosni Mubarak or, or Ben Ali or Gaddafi. There is this in organizing principle. And I, I think the Islamic Republic, even though I would argue fewer and fewer people, especially among younger generation in Iran, believe in that revolutionary ideology. They don't need 80% of the population to believe in it, as long as they have a small minority of security forces that continue to believe in it and are willing to go out and, and kill for it. You know, that's more sustainable than, than we think. The repression down to a science, and they're very capable of destroying any alternatives to them, whether that's, you know, decapitating individuals who are capable of leadership or exiling, imprisoning any alternatives. And that's absolutely true right now in Iran is that with all of the discontent and the status quo, people really don't have concrete alternative to, to point to. Karim Sajadpour, thank you for joining us on Babel. Thank you, John. Great to be with you. Next, John, Will, and I discuss how the United States and the region might interact with a new regime in Iran. If Iran were led by a Vladimir Putin type, what would be its likely regional strategy? What current Iranian policies are most likely to change and which ones are likely to persist? I think people will be disappointed that there wouldn't be a more profound change in Iran's regional strategy. It seems to me that part of Iran's nationalist tilt is going to put it in opposition to U.S. partners in the Gulf, is going to make Iran feel like it has a regional role that other countries feel threatened by. I think that, that Iran will continue to try to seek alliances with compatible groups, whether that's Hezbollah in Lebanon or Shia communities in Bahrain and elsewhere. I think you might have a little bit of difference in degree, but I don't think the overall direction of Iran feeling like it is dispossessed in the Middle East and not at its rightful position, I think that's going to be a constant. Don't forget, Iranians of all political stripes go berserk when you start talking about the Arabian Gulf and say, no, it's the Persian Gulf. And for that same reason, Gulf Arabs, whether they are sympathetic to religious movements or hostile to them, see Iran as a potential imperial power in a region that doesn't want Iranian imperial power. I think sort of thinking about the motives for some of Iran's behavior might shift slightly, but the results might be quite similar. So part of the motive of really making sure that Iran depicts itself as an anti-Western, anti-Israeli power in the region was driven by a desire, I think, to distinguish itself from the policies of the Shah before the revolution. Although that aspect of it might become less, less important under a more nationalist Putin-type regime, it's still seeking to depict itself as, as a regional power. And so I think the, the ways it would pursue that might actually look quite similar. One way to think about it is the Shah sought to advance Persian nationalism or Iranian nationalism through a partnership with Western powers, that increasingly the Iranian revolution is pursuing Iranian nationalism through opposition to Western powers. There's no reason to think that either you'd have less Iranian nationalism, which regional countries may interpret as a cover for Iranian ambitions of imperialism. There's no reason to think that that would go away or that if the Islamic part went away, 
that it would make them pro-Western. There's a different shift between shifting away from a, an aggressive nationalism and shifting away from an Islamic orientation. And I think what people are looking for is a Western orientation. And I frankly don't see a lot of seeds of that in any of the, the organizations that, that Karim was talking about as potential leaders of the future Iran, either the Revolutionary Guard Corps or the intelligence services. What would be the likely strategy of Iran's neighbors towards Iran in this scenario? What would they be willing to do that they are not currently willing to do? And what would they not do? So the neighbors might view Iran more akin to how they view Turkey at the moment, which is a regional rival. And certainly there are sources of friction that exist inside the Middle East and beyond it, but perhaps slightly less concerned about Iran's sort of intervention domestically, um, because Iran wouldn't be trying to see itself so much as a leader of the Shia community and, and the minorities that exist in, in lots of these Arab countries. But I wonder if that might allow for some more pragmatism on shared security concerns. And ultimately, they do have shared security concerns. I mean, one of them is violent extremism. Certainly, both have an interest in preventing the emergence of something like the Islamic State group again. They have shared economic security ties as well, protecting those, and, and I think even sort of shared environmental concerns. So far, we've seen Iran really insist on a self-reliance for deterrence and really seeking to pursue its security aims on its own and to defend itself on its own. And I think that there might be a bit more of a willingness to share some responsibility for aspects of its security with some of its neighbors. And, and I think those neighbors might be willing to look into that. I think we're perhaps even seeing the start of that right now with talks between Iran and, and Saudi Arabia. But I do think when we talk about someone like uh, Vladimir Putin, he is the master of opportunism in international affairs. And I think Iran is also pretty good at, at seizing opportunities to advance its interests with a relatively minor cost. So in somewhere like Yemen, for example, I don't think we should expect a huge change in some policies like that, where I think Iran, a more nationalist Iran, might still be very opportunistic. And I think that could clash with some of the some of the Gulf neighbors. I think Will's exactly right, that, that we should see this become perceived as a little less existential, a little more pragmatic. Let's not forget the, the UAE-Iran trade is a multi-billion dollar trade. There's a lot of natural commerce that goes back and forth. And I think traditionally there has been much more engagement between Iran and its Gulf neighbors. The fact that Iran is no longer seen as a domestic threat to these countries, if there is less of a tight religious tie, less of a sense that Iran is making domestic trouble for them, I think would allow for more pragmatism. But I agree very much with Will that Iran is still a country of 85 million people. And Saudi Arabia is a country of maybe 25 million citizens. And Iran casts a large shadow. They will seek to balance against Iran as they seek to engage with Iran. How would a Putin-like figure approach the United States? Very much the way Vladimir Putin has approached the United States, principally as an adversary, one with whom you, you pick your fights 
carefully, one that seeks asymmetrical conflict because of a conviction that symmetrical conflict would mean defeat. Iran doesn't have all the strength that Russia does, but I think the approach that Russia has taken is similar to the approach that Iran would take absent a much more profound domestic change in Iran. I think there would be a lot of testing of red lines as well. I think this is something that we see with Russia and with Putin is potentially coming to some kind of agreement, but then constantly testing and seeing how far they can push and what they can get away with. That's the nature of a power that views itself as a regional power, if not a global power, and that is not going to suddenly be a real partner of the United States. I think there would be a constant push. How would the United States approach a post-Islamic Iran? I think it would depend on things that are not directly Islamic. It would depend partly on how Iran thought about its nuclear program, how Iran thought about Israel, and how Iran thought about its Gulf neighbors. A Putin-like Iran would still see the U.S. as an adversary. But I think the hope is that a post-Islamic Republic Iran would have less of an existential edge to it, the same way that a post-Soviet Russia has less of an existential edge. The hope would be that we could move existential conflict with Iran into merely tension with Iran. And I think that would allow for some reduction in in U.S.-Iranian tensions. So Sajidpour suggested two major paths Iran is likely to follow, a Soviet decline and a Chinese reinvention. Are there any other paths worth considering? Well, there's the Egypt path. I mean, Egypt had a revolutionary path under Gualdo Nasser that turned into, I'm not sure what, under Anwar Sadat, distanced himself from the Soviet Union, talked about opening the economy. But overall, it seems that Egypt has become less consequential in regional affairs. I think that in many ways, that would be the Iranian nightmare that Iran would be ignored after getting the focus of the United States and Russia and China and other great powers. I'm not sure they want the Chinese path because the Chinese path has meant really walking away from a lot of ideology that has been near and dear to a lot of people in the Islamic Republic. The Soviet path of collapse is pretty unattractive as well. Maybe the Turkish path would be attractive, a sense that Turkey has decided in many ways to build on what was considered a pro-Western platform, but take it in another direction. And maybe the hope is to keep the Islamic Republic ideology almost the way Kemalism has endured in Turkey, but to take it in a much different direction the way Erdogan has has taken Kemalism in Turkey. I wonder if one other potentially even darker path would be a North Korea path and perhaps a bit closer to the Soviet case, but not with complete collapse, but using a continued nuclear program, a sort of ability to just about withstand international sanctions, but really resort to even more internal repression and to see how long they can keep going along that path. And I would have thought that's certainly in no one's interests. But there could be a calculation that Iran can withstand Western pressure and that actually engaging more in the 
global financial system after sanctions are lifted is not necessarily in its interests because that could make it more vulnerable to future pressure campaigns. And so maybe the path they take is, okay, we need to be sort of completely self-reliant going forward. Sajid Poor didn't seem to have much hope for a marked improvement in Iranian governance. But if that were to happen, how might it unfold? I think the way this often unfolds is either you have the failure of a system and the creation of something else, or you have the transition of a system to something better. China represents the transition to something better. Arguably came after the failure of the Cultural Revolution in China. But you had Deng Xiaoping saying, this has to be the way forward and, and moved it forward. Certainly, a lot of people in Iran, I think, are interested in the China model. And I could see people in, in Iran trying to follow the path that China's followed in terms of improved governance and sustained central control. I think there's also the possibility that, that as the central government loses control, you have pockets of excellence that spawn imitation. I think that's hard to do. But Iran has a fair amount of human capital. There's a young generation that, that's pretty plugged into the world. And I could see the beginnings of young Iranians trying to end the isolation and be more integrated. I think it's always hard to do that, but I could see it happening. You do have some of the remnants of pre-revolutionary Iran still there. And I could see a sort of liberalization starting young people. Again, I think the more likely outcome would be people in the intelligence services or the Revolutionary Guard trying to imitate the China model as they see it, hoping for similar economic and political outcomes. Of course, the danger, as Sajad Poor said, is as people see their conditions getting better, is that when there might then be an uprising, if there's a hope for things to get better? So how does the regime maintain control during that period? And what we've generally seen governments do is if you make alternatives unthinkable, then people are less likely to push for alternatives. And I think one of the things to worry about is that the regime, as it transitions, becomes even more repressive rather than less. And it could potentially undermine any transition toward anything better than what we've had. John and Will, thank you for joining me. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.